Tonight, I want to address one more area that God has called us to be faithful in, and that is faithful to grow. In the 1980s, a video came out called The Pursuit of Excellence. And it highlighted different companies like uh, Disney, and I couldn't remember the other ones. I did a search online, and it's not even around anymore, but it was really hot in the 80s. Sought to highlight different companies in the way they sought to be the very best they could be. It was informative, it was inspiring, and it influenced not only businesses, but churches. But but through that and other influences, excellence became kind of a, a shorthand for things like professionalism and sophistication and smoothness and technological savvy and numerical or commercial success. So if, if you grew, that means you were excellent, grew in numbers. How we define excellence has an influence on the way we pursue it. We tend to see it in terms of a destination rather than a journey. It looks a certain way. If we're going to be excellent, it's got to look like this. It's got to look like that, that band we saw at the concert the other night, or it's, it's got to look like what I saw on YouTube, or it's, it's got to look like something. Harold Best wrote a book years ago, Music Through the Eyes of Faith. And in this insightful book, he helps us better understand what the pursuit of excellence means. He says this, excellence is relative because it is set in the context of growth, of growing up into, of striving, wrestling, hungering, thirsting, pressing on from point to point and achievement to achievement. Excellence is not steady state. It is sojourn and progress, reformation and change. We are unequally gifted. No two people are alike. Hence, no two people can equally achieve. But the real point, the scriptural point, is that whatever we are, whoever we are, we can all be better than we once were. Name the activity, name the gift, name the call, and the commandment to excel in excelling stares at all of us, all of the world, square in the face. The question of God to every Christian is simply this, having achieved thus and so, what is your next move? Having achieved thus and so, what is your next move? We all come to Jesus just as we are, but God doesn't want to leave us that way. He wants us to grow. And there's this tension that exists in the, in, in the Christian life, and especially in what we do as those who, who are involved in the corporate worship of the church. The tension is this. We know that Jesus perfects all our offerings. And that can lead us to think that, well, then it really doesn't matter how good we are. Because, I mean, if Jesus is going to perfect my offerings, like, it doesn't matter. I mean, I could like practice and practice and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and it could be amazing. And it still wouldn't be enough. I mean, I'd still need Jesus to perfect my offering. And so if I don't practice at all, I mean, it takes a lot less time. And Jesus perfects the offering anyway. So that's a tension. But here's the deal. Jesus perfecting our offering doesn't release us from pursuing growth. In fact, that becomes a motivation for it. I'm going to ask you, can we turn up the house lights just a little bit? I feel like I'm... Speaking to a little dark room, and I want my friends. 
I want to see my friends. Thank you. That's great. Um, open your Bibles to Matthew 25. We're just going to use this as a jumping off point. It's a parable that Jesus tells about three servants. And it's a parable about being faithful to grow what we've been given. It's going to start in verse 14. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. Now just just imagine Jesus telling this parable. I mean, people don't know what's coming. We know what's coming, but people didn't know what's coming. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each, according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him saying, and this would have been a shock to the people who were listening. It should be a shock to us. You wicked and slothful servant. Really? You wicked and slothful servant? I'm just giving you back what you gave me. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place will be, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, we just ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your Spirit's voice, 
that we might benefit as we, as we talk about and think about, meditate on your, your purposes for our lives and how, how we might grow for your glory. Do this, I pray, for the glory of Jesus, our great Savior, and in his name, amen. There are many things Jesus is communicating in this parable. He's communicating the grace of God in his gifts. Because everything that the servants returned to the master was a gift in the first place. It's the grace of God. We can't give to God anything that he hasn't given to us. Jesus communicates that the justice of God will lead him to punish those who are unfaithful. The parable speaks of the faithfulness of God to reward, the kindness of God to reward. You know, he doesn't say to the one who brings back the two talents, you know, here's, you gave me two talents, here's two, two talents more. The master doesn't say, you're kidding, two? The guy before you just brought me five. And you have two? Come on. He says, well done, well done. It's the kindness and faithfulness of God to reward. But the point I want to highlight tonight is this. God calls us to be faithful to grow the resources he's given us. God calls us to be faithful to grow the resources he's given us. Mediocre, average, excellent, whatever you, however you think of yourself, every one of us is meant to grow. So tonight I want to, I want to kind of muse on, on this aspect of growing as a Christian musician, growing as a, a leader of corporate worship, growing as a sound engineer, growing as a Christian. We're going to look at some areas we can grow. We're going to talk about some principles of growth. We're going to look at some unexpected opportunities to grow, and we're going to finish with what motivates our growth. So first, areas we can grow in. Whenever I start planning the next Worship God conference, I think of three areas that I want to address. The mind, the heart, and skill. That's what everything is geared around, trying to, trying to address those three areas. And actually, those are, those are three areas God wants us to grow in. He wants us to grow with our minds. So he wants to grow in our knowledge of God. 1 Timothy 4.15 Paul tells Timothy, after he's, he's described to him uh, what, what he's supposed to, to be doing with his ministry, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then he says in verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. We're going to come back to that particular verse and unpack it a little bit more. But God wants us to grow in our knowledge of him, in our doctrine, in our theology. He wants us to grow in our understanding of the gospel. He, he doesn't want us to, to be saved and then just move on to deeper and better things. Because there are no deeper and better things. Everything is, is an expounding and an unfolding of the glories of Christ. And so Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Paul says something similar in chapter 2 of Colossians. 
where he, he says that he wants the Colossians, as they have received Christ Jesus the Lord, verse 6, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. We're to grow in our understanding of the gospel. We're to grow with our minds. We're to grow in our hearts. So we're to grow in Christ-likeness, in godliness. First Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. We're to grow in our love for others. God's not content to just leave us where we are. Well, I just don't get along with people. Well, I'm just kind of an introvert. God says, no, you're to grow in your love for others. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. To love one another more and more. We don't have to be content with where we are. We can grow in our love for other people. And then we're to grow in our skill. And I just identified musical and, and leadership and communication skills. We're to grow in our musical skills. Look, in First Chronicles 25, it talks about the musicians that David established at the tabernacle that were going to serve at the temple. The number of them, this is First Chronicles 25, 7, the number of them along with their brothers who were trained in singing to the Lord all who were skillful, skillful was 288. They were trained in music for the Lord. We can grow in our skill. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. In other words, as we grow better in what we do, there's, there's a good chance that God will give us a greater platform. We're to grow in our ability to communicate and to lead. So, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So, so if we love the way we communicate, and if we pay attention to it, it'll bear good fruit. So, so in those areas, God has called us to grow. It's, it's, it's broad. It's, it's sweeping. It's everything about us, really. God wants us to grow. So how does it happen? Well, let's look at some principles of growth, because growth can be mysterious. Jesus says in, Matthew, in Mark 4, 26 and through 28, he says, The kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. I mean, have you, have you ever felt that, that you're not sure quite how all this works. I mean, just people grow, you grow, and, and you're not sure how it happens. It's a little bit mysterious. But even though a farmer may not know how growth happens, he knows that consistent labor tends to produce a fruitful crop. If you get the right equipment, if you plow the ground at the right time, if you pull the weeds, if you sow the seeds, if you make sure it's irrigated, funny thing, things tend to grow. And the farmer knows that. So he puts himself on a schedule. He does things when they're supposed to be done. Diligence is necessary for production. So in the same way, there are principles of growth that will apply to all of us and typify the means by which God brings growth. So now we're going to go back to that verse, 1 Timothy 4.15. 
and look at three ways that we can pursue growth. And it was really this, this verse or these ideas that, that I wanted to, to center in on as, as we talk tonight, as I talk tonight. Because this isn't an exposition so much as it is a description of, okay, now that we know all these things, like, what do we do? Like, how do we get better? Like, I can be faithful in what I'm doing, but, but how do I grow? So, 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul says there are three things you need to do to grow. He tells Timothy there are three things he needs to do to grow in his life and doctrine. And we're going to look at each one. The first is practice these things. Practice these things. Now, if you talk to a kid who's taking piano lessons and his parents are making him take piano lessons or any kind of lessons, and you mention the word practice, it usually won't, bring, usually won't bring a smile to their face. I just love practicing. And, you know, that attitude stays with us mostly throughout life for, for a lot of us. Practice. It just has this kind of yucky feel. Practice. I always thought it interesting that doctors have practices. That doesn't make me feel very confident. I really want, like, a guy who knows it. Now, I'm not practicing. Don't practice on me. Practice these things. Practice takes intentionality, work, and time. It takes intentionality, work, and time. All of us seem to want the fruit of growth without the work. We want to be godly without studying our Bibles. We want to play like the the guys in Enfield last night without investing any time with our instrument. We're just hoping we go home now that we've seen them, you know, Ryan on the base, now we've watched him. You know, I, get I can do that, you know, that's not a problem. <laughs> and we think, you know, within a matter of weeks, we just get like watch a couple YouTube videos and we're there. And uh, that, uh, it doesn't work that way. We, we want to grow closer as a team without investing in relationships. So we, we just pray, Lord, help us be unified. Help us, help us be one, Lord, as you pray. Lord, help us be one. But we don't do any of the investing. We don't do any of the practicing to make that happen. I read a book a number of years ago called Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin. And he almost persuasively argues that, well, I could say this, persuasively argues that what most of us attribute to talent, gifting, and hereditary genes is often the result of plain, old, boring, repetitive practice. So he says this, deliberate practice is characterized by several elements, each worth examining. It is activity designed specifically to improve performance, often with the teacher's help. It can be repeated a lot. Feedback on results is continuously available. It's highly demanding mentally, whether the activity is purely intellectual, such as chess, or business-related activities, or heavily physical, such as sports, and it isn't much fun. Most of us just remember those last three words. (laughs) Isn't much fun. When When I read that book, I thought back to the years I spent in college getting a piano performance degree. For four years, I gave myself to developing my piano skills, and I did a lot of practicing, sometimes up to 10 hours a day. 
I, I averaged probably four hours a day for four years. But you know, I realized what you do with those four to 10 hours makes a huge difference. There's a way to practice wrong and there's a way to practice right. So I, I wanna talk about some of those things. This is very, this is just very practical. Um, but we don't talk about these things often enough, or we, we talk about them outside the context of, of God's intentions and God's grace and God's glory. So I want to do that in the context. We're going to fin- we began with God's grace. We're going to end with God's grace. But in the middle, well, we need God's grace too there <laughs> to do all this stuff. Practice means we focus on what's wrong and not on what's right. If you want to practice and get better, you need to focus on what's wrong and not on what's right. Someone said, if you want to be a good musician, practice what you're good at. If you want to be a great musician, practice what you're bad at. I, I know that it's, it's fun. That's fun. I know teams, worship bands, uh, musicians can, can think that they've practiced just when they go through all the songs. And that's not necessarily practicing. That's just going through the songs. Um, it's not necessarily helping you get better. Uh, I mentioned in one of the seminars today that I, I talked to a, a worship leader once who said they practice three to four times a week. And I said, how do you do that? He said, well, you know, we just find that in playing a lot together, we get better. And I said, not necessarily. I mean, not unless you're practicing what you're not good at and focusing in on that. Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that's what some of us do. We, we, we do the same thing over and over again. We go through the song. We go through a particular pattern. It may be a life pattern. It may be our devotions. We just do the same thing every day. It's not really producing any fruit, but we think, well, someday it's going to produce fruit. Maybe. Someday. Practice means focusing on what's wrong, not on what's right. Which means it might be helpful, and I'm going to be talking about the different areas of, of your heart, our minds, and our skills. So in, in the area of our hearts, you know, I know people who, uh, they have great devotions, they have consistent devotions, they follow this plan, but in their lives they're struggling with things like fear, anxiety, um, anger, impatience. And, and nothing they're reading is, is applying to what they're struggling with. Take some time to focus on what's wrong. Practice what's wrong rather than practicing what's right. You're getting your devotions. That's good. That's excellent. But take some time to go after those things that you're struggling with. So your fears, do a study on fear. And understand how if God would send his son to die in your place... There is nothing you need to fear. Memorize Psalm 112, verse 7 and 8. The righteous man has no fear of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. It's a great pair of verses. Why do I know that? Well, because I practiced it. I wanted to address fears in my life. So I said, you know what? I'm going to practice this. I'm going to get this. I'm going to practice what's wrong rather than what's right. Here's another right-wrong axiom. Don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. 
Don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. There's a difference between getting something right once and knowing it well. Have you ever been in a practice and you know, you're working on something and it's wrong, 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 right? Okay, let's stop. Let's move on. You know, when you do that, you have not learned a thing. You've gotten it right once. You know, when you get to the, the meeting where that comes again, you won't have done it wrong three times, but that's what you'll remember because you practice that three times. You practice it wrong three times. You practice it right once. Don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. Practice is not real life, but it prepares us for real life. And we need to know that. It can feel boring unless we realize this is going to help me in moments when I've got to respond instantly. So as, as a pianist, when I was you know, studying my things, I would try and break things down to the smallest components and say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to practice this thing until I just know it, until I know it, until I know it. And I, I might do it 50 times. Because I know that when I was in the middle of the piece, I just wanted to just flow. I didn't want to be able to have to think about, how do I do it? I wanted to be able to think about other things. So in life, you know, if, if we want the gospel to, to flow out of us, we need to practice the gospel. How do you practice the gospel? You preach it to yourself every day. You explore the glories of Jesus and what he's done. You study different scriptures where, where God talks about how Jesus took our sin upon himself, how he made him to be sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. Well, I want to know that here. I want to know it here so that when I'm struggling with, oh man, I've just sinned so much. Hey, hey, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Oh, praise God. That's practicing. Now, I have a very slow mind. Do you ever get this thing where you're reading something and like you've, you've read a whole page and you look up and you realize, I don't remember a single thing I just read. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me all the time. <laughs> More frequently now, actually. All right, so what do I need to do? I need to practice. I need to, I need to focus. I need to practice, not just till I get it right, but until I can't get it wrong. So that the word of Christ is dwelling richly in my heart. It applies to music, studying God's word, and godliness. And it means being harder on ourselves, being more diligent when no one is around. See, we all want to shine when people are looking, when they're watching. We all want to be, you know, the, the Olympic swimmer who just, you know, yes, and, and you know, beats everybody. We all want that moment. But we don't want to do what leads up to it. What all the work it takes, you know, we all want to be LeBron James, just, you know, taking these shots and, you know, amazing people with what he does. But no one wants to invest the time. Jerry Rice was one of the greatest receivers in NFL history. 
And he was renowned for what he did when no one was watching. This is a description of what he did in the off season. Okay, right? There's a season where the team practices. Okay? So there, you, it might, you might apply this to there's a time each week when your, when your team practices, your band practices, your musicians practice. This is what he does in the off season. Most remarkable were his six days a week off-season workouts, which he conducted entirely on his own. Mornings were devoted to cardiovascular work, running a hilly five-mile trail. He would reportedly run 10 40-meter wind sprints up the steepest part. In the afternoons, he did equally strenuous weight training. These workouts became legendary as the most demanding in the league, and other players would sometimes join Rice just to see what it was like. Some of them got sick before the day was over. And I thought about that. Would anybody, like, get sick doing what I do? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know? um, we, we, can, we can be pretty happy with ourselves. We can be pretty satisfied. And yet, if we're going to grow, we need to practice. We must practice. Practice that can't be measured becomes mindless. We need to know if our practice is really bearing any fruit. One man said practicing without feedback is like bowling through a curtain that hangs down to knee level. You can work on technique all you like, but if you can't see the effects, two things will happen. You won't get any better and you'll stop caring. And that's why so many of us lose heart. We're not really measuring to see if, if what we're doing is bearing fruit. So here's some ideas, here's some thoughts on practicing. Ask for feedback from people you trust. This takes humility. Ask for feedback. Ask, you know, I really don't like to ask for feedback sometimes because what I, what I really want to hear is you did a great job and I'm afraid someone's going to say I didn't. And so I just don't even ask. And sometimes people will just come tell me anyway. But what, what God by his grace gives us the ability to do is to ask for feedback to find out whether our practicing is bearing any fruit or not, whether it's really making a difference. So you, you work on your base for three months on your own, and then you come to your leader or friend or whatever. You say, hey, does it sound like I'm getting any better? And if they say, not really, then you don't say, well, I'm never practicing again. No, then you find out, how, you keep practicing, you find out how to practice better. Maybe you talk to a friend who plays bass better than you do and say, can you help me? You get feedback. It's, it's got to be measured Ask yourself questions about what you've learned. One thing I'll do when I'm reading books sometimes is just, just write, write in the margins. So it helps me um, interact with it. And I'll write questions down. Is this true? I don't understand this. Well, I need to find out more about this. Just things that make me interact with what I'm doing so that I can go back later and, and find out, did I get that question answered? Review what you've learned. All ways of measuring your practice. Find ways of determining whether this is really doing any good or not. So that's practicing. It's not fun, but boy, does it bear great fruit. And growth doesn't come without it. Second principle of growth, immersion. Immerse yourself in them, Paul tells Timothy. Immersion speaks of, completely, of being covered completely or surrounded by something. Lasting growth comes through engaging our minds and hearts and bodies in what we're learning. Immersion involves avoiding 
as well as pursuing, stopping as well as starting. And you see this uh, in, in people who are in school, you know, someone who's uh, in, in med school, they immerse themselves, or, or engineering, they immerse themselves, or, or music, they immerse themselves in it. Just everything becomes about that thing. And you know what? They come out usually on the other side, having really grown in what they're doing, in what they applied themselves to. But that means you have to stop doing things to immerse yourself in the right things. Some of us, some of us are really good at immersing ourselves in things that really aren't going to matter on the last day, like Facebook. I mean, really. And I'm speaking to myself here. My wife, because my wife's, my wife's sitting in the front row, and she's going to say to me afterwards, like, were you thinking of you when you said that? Yes, okay, I can. Like uh, social media, like shopping online, like some hobby or sport or maybe a TV series that like we just have to watch. What are we doing? That's immersion. We're immersing ourselves in it. But you know what happens? You know, you know what that means? We're not immersing ourselves in something else. Now you can immerse yourself in different things. But there comes a point where, because we give so much time to one thing, we just don't have time to give to others. And I just find it fascinating, you know, when you're in a public place, to see, you know, where 10 years ago people might have been at least mildly engaged with each other. Nope. You know? And I have four people sitting at the table. We're all doing this. It's like... There's something wrong here. We're, we're immersing ourselves in different things. So what effect does that have on us? How different would our lives be if we immersed ourselves in things that would bring eternal benefit to us and to others? And like practice, a lot of immersion happens when no one else is around to see it. It's what we do with our free time. It's what we do early in the morning. It's what we do late at night. And just think for a moment about the people whom you have benefited from, who have taken the time to immerse themselves in certain areas so that you could grow. Think of your parents, think of a pastor, think of teachers, older friends, people who post things on YouTube. This amazes me. You know, there are people who have spent hundreds of hours, not thousands of hours, developing a certain skill or talent, they just do a YouTube video on it. You know, here's how you play this song. Here's how you play the the bass. Here's how you play this riff on this song. Here's how you make this thing. And it's just right there. Well, we're benefiting from their immersion. They're giving the time to develop that skill. Now, the reality is we can't grow everywhere at once. So let's make it a point to grow to immerse ourselves in the things that really matter. James Gray was a Bible teacher from the early 20th century, president of Moody Bible Institute for two decades. He wrote a book in 1904 called How to Master the English Bible. It's a great title, interesting title, intriguing title. His counsel was take one book and read it over and over and over and over until you are mastered by it. Read and reread each book by itself and in its order as though there were no other in existence. 
That's immersion. I haven't done that, but I'm going to do it. I, I, I want to know the Bible like that. I want the Bible to know me. I want God in his word to, to read me, to search me. And, and when I read that, I thought, that's, yeah, I got to do that. That's what I want to do. School can be very beneficial, as I mentioned earlier, because it gives us those hours, that time to, to immerse ourselves in an area that we want to grow. But we don't need to be in school to immerse ourselves in things that will cause us to grow. So practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And then Paul says, so that all may see your progress. So that all may see your progress. I haven't grown simply because I announced to others that I've grown. I wish that were the case. We haven't grown because we've been to this conference. You know, wouldn't that be great if, like, we heard all these messages, you know, faithful to receive, faithful to proclaim, faithful to serve, faithful to grow, and, you know, and, and that was it. And we, we, we were, were faithful in all those areas just because we heard them. No, that's not how it works. Others need to confirm our impressions that we've grown. And some of us get very excited when we, when we get new information like this. Oh, it's so exciting, you know. Faithful to serve, it's so great. I just like serving, serving, serving. Well, you've got to come back three months later and, and find out if that word has been worked out in your life. That's when you've grown. Now, teaching is necessary for growth. And your being here is a way of immersing yourself in truth. But it's what comes after that really determines whether we've grown. Oftentimes we don't see our growth because we're with ourselves 24-7 or because we're comparing ourselves to someone else. And we keep trying, keep trying, but we, we don't feel like we're growing because we look at someone else, we think, oh, I'm, I'm not where they are. Growth is, measured by where, growth is measured by where I've been, not by where someone else has been. So you may hear, hear a, a musician and think, oh, wow, I, that's, I can't, I'm not there. I'll never be there and get discouraged. No, you can grow. You can grow and your progress can become evident. And I want to say this, don't minimize the encouragement of others when they say you're growing. We can do that. Oh, you've really grown. Oh, no, 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 no. And, and it may be sincere at times. You know, when someone says, oh, you, you're, you've really grown in this. You're, you're, you're more godly in this area. You're more humble. Or you're really getting better at singing or playing. And you're thinking, no, I'm not. Well, God will often do that. He'll, he will make us look worse to ourselves and better in the eyes of others so that he can receive the glory as we grow. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. Humility works that way. You know, if, if anyone comes up to you and says, you know, I'm really a lot more humble than I used to be, <laughs> that's not a good sign. Because a humble person is more aware of their sin as they grow. And you know what? That causes them to become more humble. But they don't feel more humble. But it's evident to others. Growing presupposes the presence of humility. We will look back on different seasons of our lives and realize we've changed, we've gotten better, we're sinning less, we're more proficient. That means there are things we're doing right now that, that are going to change, that can change. And the question I want to pose tonight is, are we looking for them? Not everything I mean, the thing we don't want to do from this conference is, 
is go home with a list of like 50 ways we're going to change. You know, because we'll get to the first two and then think, that's never going to happen. And then you will just think, look back on Worship God 2013. That was a great conference. Yeah. Totally useless as far as any change in my life, but it was good. It was good. We don't want that to happen. By God's grace, it won't happen. So just take a few things. Take, take an area of your playing or take, take an area of your spiritual walk or take an area of the, of the way you, you lead. Say, I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on that, that one thing. We want to be looking for those areas that we can change in. All right, let me talk about some unexpected opportunities for growth. Sometimes we're looking for growth in all the wrong places. We're, 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 we're thinking that, well, it looks like success as the world defines it. If I'm successful, I'm growing. Or we think the process of growth is one that we can always control. It's not. Trials are an expect, unexpected opportunity for growth. So you might be growing, going through a trial right now, and it's a wonderful season of growth. Doesn't feel like it. But listen to what James says, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's producing something in your life. Or how about pruning? That's an unexpected opportunity for growth. Jesus says in John 15, verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Here's another unexpected opportunity for growth. Losing a position. It doesn't always feel like growing. In fact, it never feels like growing. You have a position and someone says, you don't have that anymore. You're on the team. You're not on the team anymore. It doesn't feel like growing. Well, think what happened to Joseph. Genesis 39, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. Remember, that's Potiphar's wife telling her husband that David had tried to seduce her. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Have you ever thought that you might have lost your position so that the Lord might bring growth in your life and maybe someone else's life. Another unexpected opportunity for growth is just waiting in the same place, which is one of the hardest kinds of growing. Luke chapter 1, verse 80 says this of John the Baptist. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That would have been 30 years. So what do you think, like, around year 18? What's John the Baptist thinking? This is, like, not happening. <laughs> All those prophecies. I mean, you know, my dad couldn't speak, and, you know, the angel, and he, I'm in the desert, and wow. 
But God used John the Baptist. You don't know what this time of waiting, what God is doing in this time of waiting. But I can tell you this, he wants to grow you. He wants to bring growth in you, and he wants to bring growth through you. So we're going to close by talking about the motivation of our growth. What, what, what motivates our growth? Ecclesiastes 4 talks about how sometimes envy motivates our growth. Ecclesiastes 4, 4, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. A lot of people grow because they just want to be better than other people. Now, that's not a good reason to grow. It could be greed. Again, Ecclesiastes 4, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? We get greedy. We just want more and more and more, so we work hard. A lot of workaholics are like that. Workaholics are like that. They just want more and more. That's, that's a motivation. It's not a good motivation. It could be pride. Pride can motivate us to grow. When I started college, I wanted to go to study piano so that when I finished those four years, I would be able to play anything I wanted to play. That was my motivation. That was it. Now, I became a Christian during college, so that motivation changed. But that was it. I just, I just want to, I don't want anybody have to, to be able to put a piece of music in front of me that I can't play. Just pride. Like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And God put him out in the fields. Wasn't impressed. God wants our growth to be motivated by his glory in Jesus Christ and the gospel. It comes as no surprise to land on that. In a verse that was referenced earlier, 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we gaze upon the glory of the Lord, remember what John shared this morning about watching Jesus. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we're, we're going to be transformed in, into his image from one degree of glory to another. If we grasp what Jesus Christ did to save us, what God did to save us, the pain Jesus endured to redeem us, what God's purposes are for his glory on the earth and in eternity, that the inheritance being preserved for us is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If we grasp that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we will spend all eternity in his presence enjoying with countless others his glory, we can't help but want to grow. We cannot help but want to grow. If we see him like Isaiah, like David, like Jacob, like Paul, like John, the glory of God who has chosen and called and justified and adopted us, we will want to be like him. And although we acknowledge that all our offerings are perfected by Jesus Christ, the glorious Savior, 
That knowledge causes us to want to be like him, to want to be faithful, to want to grow. And we'll take on a new perspective that says, I'm secure in God's love. I know God loves me. I'm not insecure in that. I'm secure that, that God is taking care of my future. I don't, I'm not striving to, to be something that, that, that everybody will be impressed by. No, if we say, you know what? I'm a child of God. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. You belong to him. We've been bought with a price. And we have been called to display his glory. And don't you want to get better at that? Don't you want to get better at displaying his glory? Listen to what Paul said about his life. I love this. This is in Acts 20, 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we have great news. We have great news to proclaim. We have great news to sing about. And and we we don't want God's glory to be hindered through us. We don't want it to be limited through us. I think some of us have have been sitting in one place for some time saying, well, you know, it'll happen. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. And this word tonight is a challenge to you to say, you know what? God has saved you to grow. He saved you for a purpose, to bring him glory. And who knows how the Lord might use you (coughs) in ways that you can't imagine if we set ourselves to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John Newton said. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan. And I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. From beginning to end, it's the grace of God. We have been saved by grace. We will be glorified by grace. We are being sanctified by grace. And we will grow by grace. May that glorious grace in Jesus Christ that that brings us comfort and assurance also be the fuel and motivation for becoming more like him and fulfilling his purposes in our lives in the days to come. Let's pray.